Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Tony Bennett. Pleased to meet you, Toby. (laughs) Pleased to meet you, Tony. For what is not quite the first time, I'm thinking we met something in the order of 35 years ago for the first time. That's probably true, but there's no need to tell everyone. (laughs) It goes back that far. But for sure, it would have been in the mid-1980s in Brisbane. Yeah, that's right. We we went, you had already started working at Griffith University and I went there. And I very much enjoyed working with you. But that's not exactly why we're here today, although it may have made it easier to get your attention. And vice versa. They were very good years working together. It was a good place to be. Yeah, it was great. They were very good years. Yeah, yeah. And, Tony, the the way I like to start these things is to ask my interlocutors what's dynamizing them at the moment, preoccupying them, interesting them. So what's going on for you right now? Well, kind of like, I suppose, two or three intersecting areas. Uh, One of them is it's a topic that's kind of interested me for a long time, Um, and I've done various things on it, but brought one stage of that to fruition in a book that was published recently. I've got to get this plug in. It's <laughs> called Habits, Pathways, Power, Repetition, Conduct. And that book is, um, in brief, it's a kind of Foucauldian political history of habit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm still interested in that topic and I've been uh, working in collaboration with some researchers in the UK and in um in Europe, in terms of, you know, thinking of some collaborations that might take that work forward with lots of other people in new directions. So that's one area of work that has been of interest to me. A a second has been the the political history of culture concepts, and in particular, the political history of the concept of culture as a way of life, Mm -hmm. which, you know, as we know, is one of the foundational concepts of British cultural studies brought into those terms of debate by Raymond Williams, picked up by the Birmingham School and used, um, I'd have to say on the whole, kind of like without much regard to its earlier critical history, because it's a concept imported from the Boasian tradition of American anthropology. And at exactly the same time it was being taken up by British cultural studies, American anthropologists were junking it as fast as they could because of the problematic history that it had had in post-war assimilationist debates and practices in the US, in terms of the ways in which it didn't adequately engage with, by any means, with the position of African-Americans or uh, Native Americans. But nonetheless, uh, uh, so it's the political history of the concept that interests me and the ways in which uh, its political history has taken on various forms when it's moved out from Australia through networks of anthropology, including, well, in various places. And the the third thing that intersects in ways that I might come back to later has been with theorising relations of art power, art and power, art slash power, but with particular regard to the different ways in which those issues have been broached by Pierre Bourdieu, and Michel Foucault, or accurately by Pierre Bourdieu and people who followed in his way, and by Michel Foucault and people who followed in his way, but with the big difference that people who followed in the wake of Foucault's work, there's a marked, a much greater sort of like more marked difference between the use that post-Foucauldian scholars make of Foucauldian concepts now and what Foucault ever had to say about art than there is in the Bourdieu literature. There's a good, strong degree of continuity between what Bourdieu said and what post-Bourdieusians say. What interested me in that is that both... uh, Foucault had a series of lectures on Manet. Um, Bourdieu gave a course of lectures on Manet that became a book. And he engaged with Foucault's work in that. And they both engaged with questions of art and power via their work on Manet, but in very significantly different ways. But I think there are productive synergies that might be made between them. And so I'm kind of fiddling around with that. So those are the three sort of intersecting issues. That if I'm, I pick, uh, up on, pick up on the third one, Tony, just for yeah. now. Sure. I'm thinking one of the differences between the two 
scholarly traditions is that Bourdieu had a pretty clear research method and story that people participated in and followed upon. Whereas with Foucault, it's a more complicated tale, I think. It's more idiosyncratic. And there wasn't a large group of people engaged in collective research with him, although there were some. Yeah? Oh, no, that's certainly true. I mean, in that sense, Bourdieu's work developed along much more of a, a kind of like a clearly institutionalized problematic and set of trajectories. And um, his dominance until relatively recently of French sociology, particularly French cultural sociology, is very marked. And there are there are legions of particularly French, but other scholars whose approach to questions of art and power, I mean, including work that I've done, just owes a kind of like a, a very clear formal debt um, to Bourdieu and what he had to say about the operation of art fields, which is tremendously important. But the other difference is, is that um, there is, it's not just that there's greater continuity between what Bourdieu had to say about art power relations and what uh, post-Bourdieuian scholars, scholars have had to say about it. It's also that in Foucault, there's a kind of like, a, there's a, a gap in his work. He, he wrote mainly about questions of art and literature and so on in his early writings. And he really stopped doing much in that field when he began from around about the time that he got involved in Discipline and Punish and his subsequent work on governmentality after that. And in many ways, um, in, in my view and in the view of many, what he had to say in his early writings on art and literature was kind of like fairly conventional for the time, writing in the Telquel tradition. Mm. Um, kind of, I won't say formalist, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be quite right, but nonetheless, a certain kind of abstraction of um, of art from social relations. In some in some respects, a principled abstraction of art from social relations, because his position was: ask not what social relations do to art; ask what ask what art does to social relations. But there is there is um, uh, there are a number of interesting kind of like interesting engagements with the implications of his later concepts around governmentality, discipline, um, apparatus, implications with his later concepts for art theory. And it's those, it's what subsequent writers have made of Foucault's work that he didn't make himself, the extrapolations that they've made from his later bodies of theory that uh, I'm most interested in. And in terms of Manet, can you briefly adumbrate for us what the the take is, uh, what your take is versus theirs? I don't have a take on Manet versus theirs um, uh, for, for a number of reasons. One, I'm not particularly interested to come up with an account of Manet. I just mm-hmm. use their different accounts of Manet as a point of entry mm-hmm. into saying, well, OK, if you look at uh, if you look at the work of Bourdieu, if you look at the work of Foucault, on questions of art, they have some concepts in common. They have a concept of field in common, but they interpret it quite differently. They have concepts of discourse in common, but they interpret it differently. For by and large, for Bourdieu, he's only, it's not only, but principally interested in the discourses of art or literary criticism. Where if you look at what Foucault has to say about, or post-Foucauldians have to say about discourses and how they bear upon art practices, they go much broader than that. So an example might be someone I, I think you'll, you'll probably know quite well, the work of Jonathan Crary mm-hmm. um, and the ways in which he engages with Foucauldian concepts of discourse to bring them bear upon art practices, including but not particularly those of Manet. He draws upon a much broader set of discourses around psychological and socio-psychological and physiological discourses around notions of attention, for example. And you don't get that in Bourdieu, not nothing like to the same degree. But then um, they have concepts of the apparatus in common. And you can, both of them would say, and both traditions of work would say, look, you know, if you're looking at questions of art power, you have to look at the apparatuses of, Foucault would say, the art world or the art, art field, art galleries and so on and so forth. Uh, Foucauldians would say the same thing, and indeed, in you know some of my my work on what I call the exhibitionary complex, 
draws more on Foucault to look at the ways in which museums and art galleries and so on operate as apparatuses. So while they both share this conception of apparatuses as being important to the way to, to the ways in which art is implicated and imbricated in the exercise of power relationships, they do so quite differently. So that for Bourdieu, by and large, what he's interested in are the ways in which art institutions operate as institutions of legitimation. Um, if you look at the... Uh, Foucault didn't have much of interest to say about art galleries or museums, but the post-Foucauldian literature does, and it, it looks at it differently. It says, well, okay, how do these operate as governmental apparatuses? How do they? How are they implicated in formatting the social for vari various ways of acting on and shaping conduct? So there are similarities but differences. But then I guess the major difference would be is that uh, particularly, whereas in his early writings, Foucault would say, uh, let's not look at how social relations might impact upon the author or the artist in ways that affect their art. And the very founding principles of, of, of Bourdieu's dispositional sociology are to say, no, to the contrary, let us look at how the artist's habitus is shaped by his or her social background. And let us look at the implications of that for his or her um, art practice. And, and typically in many cases, including in the case of Manet, he says, well, what, we ha what you have to look at in the case of Manet is his cleft habitus, his split habitus, his habitus divided between his coming from a kind of like a high bourgeois family full of professionals, in, in the, you know, legal professionals, and then his kind of like schooling in the institutions of Bohemia. And how does this fracture inform his artwork? These are questions that Foucault um, ostentatiously avoids. He says, no, look at the canvas, look at the canvases, look at what's going on in the canvas and think, um, what does this canvas, what does this canvas do? In what kind of practices of doing is it implicated? I think it's fair to say the question he doesn't answer particularly well in what is for him just a short series of lectures on Manet um, written uh, you know, at the time when he was clearly going to work on, clearly going to move in new directions. But the questions that a good number of post-Vacordian scholars have put to interesting and good use. And in terms of power, this is a thorny question, because for many in the Foucauldian tradition, power is not necessarily negative, it's not necessarily about oppression, it's not necessarily about class or gender or racial power. Uh, the exercise of force implicitly or explicitly, it is also about the production of capacities, right? So is that what you're driving at when you look at the nexus of art and power in this project? It would be, uh, yes, it would be in the case of, um, in the case of some, some of the directions in which I want to take it. I, as I said earlier on, I'm not trying to develop a new reading of Manet I use Manet as a point of entry into raising a set of questions to say, look, you know, here are these two, two theorists, same, uh, same artist. Bourdieu actually comments on what Foucault had to say and outlines his reasons for disagreeing with him. And then I move on to generalize it and move it on to new fields of application. So some of the areas in which I'm interested to work it through are, are with reference to some Australian debates, uh, and uh, as I'm, I'm sure you know through the work of many people, including like Fred Myers, um, but many other people, the development of um, a distinctive kind of like field of indigenous art, or as he calls it, a kind of a, a semi-autonomous field of indigenous art in Australia is his particular point of reference. He draws a good deal upon Bourdieu, right? And there's there's quite a lot of work written by people drawing on Bourdieu's work to account for the development of a distinctive field of art, a distinctive field of uh, indigenous art in Australia, particularly the Western desert art tradition developed from the 1980s onward as a field of art, which has spread internationally, which has its, uh, which unlike the rest of the Australian field of art, unlike the Australian Australian field of art, if I can put it in that way, 
is characterized by a set of a, a set of relationships between different forms of authority whose role in legitimating and mediating indigenous art to broader publics is critical. First of all, there are uh, art historians, there were art historians, there are art historians who have commented upon since the 1970s indigenous art and brought it into the public domain in various ways. There are anthropologists, people like Fred Myers, um, Howard Morphy and so on, who have been mediators of the relationship between indigenous art and broader publics uh really over a, in a very influential way for a period of 20 to 30 years and in a very progressive and helpful way in alliances that are greatly appreciated by a number of indigenous artists and intellectuals there's no doubt about that i can say that having been to an event in canberra just a few weeks ago of which um fred was involved in conversation with a number of painters from uh, of pintupi painters from the western desert with whom he did his fieldwork some 30, 30 to 40 years ago. And the, the degree of kind of like positive interaction between them was stunning and uh, marvellous to, to, to watch and to listen to. But increasingly, uh, uh, increasingly over the course of the 20th century, there are now a whole host of kind of like independent indigenous intellectuals who are curators, critics, who are engaging in their own form of de decolonizing criticism, decolonizing curatorial practices, which mean that now this field of indigenous art is really quite, it's very complicated with a large number of different kind of like um, institutions, forms of legitimating authority that are at work in it, that the general perspectives of Bourdieu can illuminate, but don't, get you into the intricacies of. Mm -hmm. Nor do I think that these accounts of legitimation satisfactorily get you to the uh, answer the question of what forms of power is this, uh, are these art practices engaging with, exercising? Uh, and I think, having said this, I'm sure that many anthropologists like Fred Myers and Harold Morphe would say the same thing. There are other questions to be answered. And this becomes a very intricate set of questions bearing upon what power are they exercising within and for indigenous communities, rural, urban, uh, producing new forms of relationships between them, which it undoubtedly has done. What forms of power are they exercising in international art markets? Um, but what interests me in particular, and, and this bears upon uh, some of the remarks I made earlier about my interest in the history of the of culture concepts. Um, in what ways are they acting upon and influencing kind of like broader debates about culture and Australianness within Australia? And in part, and this would not just be me saying this, this is something that indigenous curators and intellectuals, anthropologists, and so on would agree with, is to say that the kind of the nature of the public ground now on through which art practices are influential in the broader public sphere within Australia is very much influenced by a kind of a, a thinking of the relationships between country and culture, between indigenous country and culture, that bears the signs of some interactions between the imported tradition, traditions of anthropology, and um the enormously kind of like resurrected and augmented force of indigenous conceptions of country and country and culture. So what I'm interested in are the relationships between indigenous art practices, the uh, their mediation in public culture in Australia, and the ways in which they seek to act upon the conduct, the views, beliefs, actions of both of non-Indigenous and Indigenous Australians and the relationships between them through the ways in which they engage with what I call somewhat clumsily, but a useful summary, the country culture couplet. Hmm. And Hope that makes sense. Yes, it does. You mentioned a moment ago this way of life topic, which was the second issue that you raised when we began. I wondered if we could revisit that a little bit. It's very much associated with Raymond Williams and yeah. his legacy within British cultural studies. And I wonder whether 
you could expand a bit on what you would see as being the work that's been done by that concept, be it beneficent or otherwise. Yeah. The work that it's done that I've been interested in is is related to um, the role that it played. One has to go back to look at the role that it played initially in American anthropology, and I'll cut a number of corners here, but one of the key mediators of uh, the role that it played in American anthropology for Williams was Ruth Benedict, who in her book Patterns of Culture kind of like outlined succinctly the notion, and he draws upon it explicitly, about the ways in which culture has to be thought of not, it has to be thought of as a pattern of life that's rooted in, and this is the key thing, in a particular territory. So, you know, it's a territorially organised, um, aesthetically shaped pattern of life. This became formalised in the vocabulary of um, American um, anthropology through a, a term that was introduced by Clark Whistler, who was Boas's succession as the curator of anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History, American Museum of Natural History, yeah. Um, he called them culture areas, you know, so that different Native Americans, their culture was characterized by a territorially defined uh, pattern of a way of life. When Williams introduced this concept into British debates, he did so originally with reference to what he defined as the territorially defined way of life of the mining areas of northeast Wales, which is where he grew up. You know, so that's kind of what 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 informed his conception of it. And this notion of kind of like being linked to territorially defined ways of life defined its international career more broadly. The concept was imported into French debates. This is, um, again, through, through the museum sector in the way. It was introduced into French debates through Paul Rivet, who was the director of the Musée de l'Homme in Paris, and uh, Georges-Henri Rivière, who was the director of the uh, Museum of Popular Arts and Traditions. This would be in the late 1930s. But in ways that, particularly through the work of Riviere, had a very strong interest on the development of a kind of like an interest in rural cultures in France and in the development of a modernising approach to rural cultures in France, which subsequent kind of like French scholars have traced through to the development of a kind of like of, of a distinctive um, approach to, to French rural ecologies, but still at work in 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 the tourist industry, for example. So it has a it has a complicated history there. It came into Australia. Uh, it came into Australia through a variety of routes, through a number of anthropologists to interpret it in different ways. The one that's most interested me was where a, a, a chap, an anthropologist from uh, South Australia called Tyndale, I forget his first name now, I think it was Henry Tyndale, but anyway, Tyndale, who... Uh, worked with the American anthropologist in Australia, the American anthropologist Clark Whistler. They worked together in Australia in the 1930s for a while, so Tyndale was very much exposed to this American Boasian tradition of anthropology. But the key importance of it is, is that Tyndale was one of the first anthropologists in the 20th century to begin to map indigenous cultures to territory. So this goes back on kind of like a longer history. By and large, 19th, mid-19th to early 20th century anthropologists sought to, sought to, sought is the wrong word, but their work contributed to the effacement of any notion of a significant connection between different indigenous peoples and different cultures located in different countries. It was kind of like you know, these were nomadic peoples who were dislocated from land and the colonial venture made sure that if they weren't dislocated from land, we sure as hell will dislocate them from it now through a variety of kind of like mechanisms of expulsion from land and so on. But however, Tyndale in the 1930s did something that had not happened in Amer in anthropology for about a century. Um, it is, he, he began to map indigenous cultures, 
to territories. There were all sorts of problems with the ways in which he did it. And his mapping practices are not the same as indigenous mapping practices. But nonetheless, the maps that he produced right the way through until the 1970s informed what is now, and that was adapted later on in the 1990s by the um, IATSIS, the um, Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs, adopted as its official map. So this official map now, you've probably seen it, it's, you know, it's a map of Australia with lots of different colours indicating different countries, different indigenous countries. And this map is now kind of like, you can't go into a museum without seeing it in Australia. You can't go into an art gallery hardly without seeing it. Many indigenous intellectuals say this is no this is this is kind of like not right and they are right in saying this that we don't conceive of countries as being hermetically separate from one another like you do in western cartographic practices we emphasize flows across these boundaries the boundaries of fluid and so on but nonetheless this kind of like um, mapping of indigenous cultures to country to these countries that now circulate broadly in uh, the overall public culture, these are some things that have a these are things that now have a currency for non-indigenous Australians. It's very kind of like powerful, and it's that currency that inter indigenous intellectuals and artists and curators engage with in the ways now in which indigenous art practices are mediated in the public sphere. And um, Again, just a point of reference for listeners, this is Norman Tyndale. Norman was his first name. And, yes, that's right. Thank you. And he had connections, as did many intellectuals of his time, on the left as well as the right, to eugenics. Oh, and, he did, absolutely. No, no. Yeah. No, no, he did. His work, no, his work was, he was still, in his personal intellectual trajectories, he was still linked to, his work was extremely contradictory. He was still linked to eugenics. He was still linked to evolutionary conceptions. But it's just this kind of, his maps were clearly, you know, they, they, they constituted a kind of, um, they had an influence upon the development of subsequent mapping practices that have sought to produce a kind of ground of exchange between indigenous and, and, and Western mapping practices. That's the point. Yeah, absolutely. And very important when it comes to things like native title, so-called, yeah. and also debates about, for example, extraction and use of natural resources and who government benefits they're yeah. from, right? Yeah, exactly. So all of these things, all of this, this aspect of, um, again, what, what I'm calling as a convenient shorthand, the country culture coupler uh, if you cast your mind back a little bit further if you if you cast your mind back to the 19 late 1960s and 1970s and look at indigenous cultural politics in australia then although notions of country and culture would still have an active life amongst many indigenous australians these this was not its, these were not the prominent face of indigenous cultural politics at the time when most indigenous leaders at the time were urban-based and they drew their inspiration from American civil rights movement. And it was a kind of like more generalized form of black consciousness. Black spelt B-L-A-C-K, not B-L-A-K. It was a more generalized form of an internationalized black consciousness that was more publicly prominent at that point in time. That now is not, that is really no longer visible. Um, if you looked at indigenous into public intellectuals at that time, men and women, they had Afro hairstyles. This is no longer the case. Uh, the whole kind of like every aspect of kind of like the vocabulary of culture has shifted to this country culture relation, uh, including many intellectuals and politicians who were involved at that time. You know, they've, they've changed in this direction. And so it is now particularly since the 1990s with the development of land rights movement with the 1992 Marble case. Um, uh, but not only 
uh, not only that, you know this from coming to Australia, uh, um, you know, as recently as you have done. But many people listening to this won't know that you can't you can't go into a museum or art gallery now. You can't go to a cinema without there being an acknowledgement of the indigenous country that you're on. Which is a very good thing. You can't go to a university lecture. You can't go to uh, any public seminar or activity really without there being either a, an acknowledgement to country that's given by a non-indigenous person, or if there is an indigenous person present, a welcome to country. You can't go to a sports match, the big sports match, without there being a welcome to country. So this vocabulary of country and culture is now really kind of like saturated in the Australian cultural environment in ways that have, uh, you know, something like an accumulating history over 20 to 30 years. And um, it, its force was very important during the all the consultations that led up to the referendum and the voice. And it, it was in play in those debates in many, many ways. We'll have to see what happens now going forward. This was a referendum recently defeated to give... Uh, institutional constitutional space to elected indigenous representative evaluation of relevant legislature. That's right. And when you refer to the Mabo decision, this was, as you say, a legal case held in the High Court of Australia, which is the equivalent of the Supremes in the United States, um, about this question of, of native title. And these are areas, too, where anthropologists have been important witnesses, special expert witnesses for mining companies, governments, indigenous groups, etc., but often at the cost of the credibility of indigenous intellectuals, I think it's fair to say. I don't know what the story is nowadays, but that was the case. Um, sorry, what do you mean at the cost of indigenous intellectuals in the sense well, of... Well, the idea that for, for decades in Australia, in legal cases and financial discussions, the testimony of anthropologists about native oh, yes. was given credence in ways that the testimony yes. of indigenous intellectuals... Uh, no, no, undoubtedly, undoubtedly so, but probably not in, in recent debates. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Australia's leading anthropologists at the moment now have very productive rela relationships and are um, with leading intellectual... Uh, leading Indigenous intellectuals on these matters and that their testimony will be more likely to pull together, I think, now than in than in earlier periods that you're referring to. So just getting back to your reference to Raymond Williams and territory, thinking more broadly within cultural studies, what sort of influence has that had and, and does it have now? Now, um... I think it had it had enormous influence on the early periods of British cultural studies, but I have to say I'm a little bit rusty on these now, rustier than I was um, than I was involved in them. I think the key change, two key developments would occur to me. One would be that although Williams did in his early work articulate the concept of way of life in his very first um, essay that picked up the the concept from uh, the picked up the concept which is his essay called culture is ordinary i think if i've got the title right that's where his reference to wales and and the concept of territory the distinct way of life comes in i think in his subsequent work but more particularly the ways in which it was then picked up and you know developed productively by uh, not just the birmingham school but Early British cultural studies developing in the in in that kind of like um, following in the work of both Williams and Hall, it developed a particular its strongest associations were with class rather than with uh, rather than with region. It had those associations with class in Williams's work when he referred to the distinctive culture of a, a mining an industrialized mining way of life in a kind of semi rural area of Wales. It had those kind of like class associations there. But I think the class associations came to predominate. I'm sure if one looked, went back and looked at the literature, there would be uh, people who would 
have taken up and engaged with the concept and related it to particular regional areas of working class culture in Britain. I'm, I'm sure that happened, but I can't recall any of the sources, uh, you know, at the moment. Um, and then there, the, the, the debates around the debates around um, culture, working class culture, popular culture, and hegemony, the struggle for hegemony, the notion of distinctive class anchored ways of life was very prominent um, in those debates, and not just with reference to I mean, E.P. Thompson was someone to conjure with too then. Um, in these contexts, as indeed he still is in other contexts. The big change, um, and, you know, we'll have to go back and, uh, and look at Stuart, Stuart Hall's work carefully to think about this. But I think that the ways in which he, you know, significantly changed the debates through thinking about questions of culture through the lens of race and ethnicity. Um, I'm not sure that, the, that in, in the process of doing that, I'm not sure how in I can't recall how much Stuart did or did not retain the concept of ways of life in the ways in which he thought through and engaged with those issues, which were a kind of like a game changer for cultural studies, not just within Britain, but internationally. That's something that I'd really love to, to kind of look at more closely, but um, that would be a big job. It's, we uh, This year in the centenary of Edward Thompson's birth, and it's significant that Thompson and Williams were born in the mid-20s, Hall in the early 30s. And Thompson and Williams both died before the Cold War died. And yeah. uh, it would have been fascinating to have seen their responses. I mean, now, of course, we're in another Cold War, uh, maybe not so cold. But um, I think there is a a trajectory that one could trace that is partly to do with a Cold War break in the way that uh, class got discussed in relation to other social formations. There are lots of other explanations. Obviously, people like Thompson had left the Communist Party in 56, yep. I think, and so on. But there are elements that one could associate with that, along with, obviously, demographic changes and political changes yep. that made for a, a heightening of racial and ethnic difference as a topic of substance and matter. No, no, indeed. And um, look, also, of course, I mean, the ways in which the uh, the class-based concept of ways of life got challenged most strongly initially, it, particularly in the Birmingham context, was through questions of gender. Mm. And the, the debates that... Um, you know, had a, had a strong focus or, or had a strong point of engagement uh, at the Birmingham Centre. Um, that's where that's where the that's where the uh, class centredness was uh, first disputed and displaced. Mm. And Stuart's Stuart's work on the ethnicity and uh, uh, racial uh, issues and the different sorts of inflections those lent to the concept of culture came a little bit later. Moving on to the first topic that you raised when we began, Tony, which yes, is yes. habit. 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 Say some more. Yeah. Well, habit's one of those concepts that has been around for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thought onwards. Um, I first got interested in the subject of habit through the role that it had in the kind of the critique of everyday life tradition. Um Henri Lefebvre, people, people like that. The role of habit in the tissue of everyday life, the endless repetition, the ways in which it induced forms of mindlessness, the ways in which it brought about various forms of subservience to power. Uh, and uh, what I first got interested in the, in the subject was through engage, critical engagements with Lefebvre by Rita Felsky uh, and Leslie Johnson to both working in Australia at the time, um, both of whom took issue with um, Lefebvre had a kind of like a very negative view of women's role to habit and repetition because he thought they were unduly bound by it. And they initiated a, a, an important critical engagement with that aspect of Lefebvre's work. 
But I also got pulled into the debates around habit by reading uh, Deleuze's Difference and Repetition. Um, not an easy text, <laughs> but uh, an interesting one. And um, and in particular with you know Deleuze's argument that um, <clears throat> repetition gives rise to difference, difference stems from repetition. So he's breaking with the terms of reference of the everyday life tradition. So that for him, habit is rethought uh, as a as a, a positive and enabling role gen- with the capacity to generate, uh, with the power to generate new capacities. And in doing so, he revived various early traditions of thought about habit that have been engaged with very productively by a number of post-Tolosian scholars, one of the most notable of whom is Elizabeth Gross and, and her critical engagements with habit through the lens of Deleuze looking backwards to earlier traditions of, of philosophical engagement with habit, habit. in particular, uh, the work of Philippe Gravisson, to generate, in her view, a very positive account of habit as being something that is generative of a capacity for freedom. So I have great respect for this tradition, uh, but at the same time, it's not the one it's a bit kind of closed in on itself, in my view. Um, because I think that really what, what that is saying is that in such accounts, as I would put it, it, habit is being brought under a form of tutelage. And the tutelage that it's being brought under is that of philosophers who promise to lead habit, to lead repetition, to break with it from its from its potentially kind of like negative capacities, to lead them uh, uh, on a road toward freedom. But this is the history of habit. The history of habit is the history of competition between different authorities with the capacity to lead or direct conduct in particular directions. This this capacity, this this conception of habit, does go back originally to, um, at least the ways in which I pick upon it, it goes back to uh, Christian theology and the role of Christian theology as it later generated kind of that medieval thought. And it's it's here that I begin to pick up on uh, Foucault uh, again, but in another way. So in medieval Christian tradition, habit is something that is regarded as generative of new capacities, it's productive of virtues. And these, if led by the pastor, can lead can lead us on the road to grace. Habit is something that's on a pathway on the road to the acquisition of grace. But having said that, it is also in its distribution, it's uh, dualistic, it's schismatic. It's not the case for everyone. Habit operates this most, uh, most, um, actively for the priesthood. Um, And the critical literature on habit relating to this area shows that if you were a peasant or if you were a pagan, uh, if you, and so on, then the regimes of habit and their positive capacity to lead you on a road to the acquisition of grace did not apply. The forms of repetition that applied to the peasantry were ones that were brought under the heading of custom. Custom in an earlier sense than later brought to it by Hume, but anyway, under the heading of custom. So there's this duality in the ways in which repetition is politically administered. On the one hand, in this period, habit is something that's a benevolent capacity nurtured by particular forms of authority, beastly, leading selected parts of the population on the road toward the acquisition of grace. And for others, there are other forms of repetition that were akin to those applied in forms of animal training. And these dualities are clearly linked to the structure of inequalities in medieval Europe, in which the church was a massive source of wealth and inequality and and so on. Anyway, so uh, I I am as... uh, So in Foucault, talks about habit in the medieval period, he talks about it is in this pathway, pathway, it's a pathway that leads forward. It's a pathway that has certain forms of authority directing it. It's a pathway that leads towards certain forms of you know, monastic power and privilege. Uh, and it's also a pathway later on in the 
um, you know, when the, when the Protestant challenge comes along, it's a pathway that leads to the installation of certain forms of counter-authority, the counter-authority of the mystics. Now, I won't go into this in great detail, but many of the heroes of habit in the in the present, people like Deleuze, people like, um, there's a strong interest in Bergson's thought, they sought to exercise the power of mysticism. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, uh their, 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 their forms of, in the case of Bergson in particular, I mean, he really strongly took issue with any form of um, non-mystical intellectual authority. So the tradition that builds upon Deleuze is not, in my view, a tradition that is different from, in principle, it's different in direction, it's difficult in its political import, but it is a tradition that is seeking to guide conduct in various ways on a pathway. Now, these pathways have all sorts of complicated political histories, and the nature of the authorities that are involved in their direction change quite radically in the course of the late 18th and 19th centuries. And this is where there's a passage in Foucault in his book called um, now then, uh, The Punitive... Punitive society. There's a two or three pages in which he, toward the end of that book, he says what his concern had been in the course of lectures that he offered under that title. And he says it had been to offer, he said, it, it, what I've been trying to do is offer a kind of like history of habit. And he said, what well, really what I was trying to do was to show how this history changed from, and the case he cites is Hume in the, you know, the early 18th century. I forget exactly when Hume yeah, early to mid-18th century. It changes uh, from Hume's account of habit, <clears throat> habit, which in his case was linked um, in a positive relationship to custom, so that, that's another change, but I won't go into that. For him, habit, uh, Hume's regime of habit, he said, was really about um, developing an account of forms of traditional obligation that would produce a political order that would bind the relationships between members of the propertied classes. It says that what happens in the late 18th, 19th century is there's a development of a whole new series of knowledges, physiology, psychology, um, which radically alter the kind of the field of discourses around habit. And that with these, with these discourses around, new, dis, new discourses around habit, new ways of thinking about habit, in relationship to the constitution of personhood, he said habit changes. It becomes an instrument of normalization. It becomes an instrument of disciplinization. Um, it is uh, henceforward to be looked at in terms of how it operates kind of like across, across relationships of power rather than how it's operating within a, a set of privileged relationships of the powerful. And so following that through, one looks at the ways in which new forms in, in the 19th century, new ways of managing managing habits pathways in ways that are not calculated to induct populations uh, to develop new capacities, to move in new directions, but rather to kind of like and chain them within particular pathways um, uh, it's something that I became kind of like very interested in. It's something that D.P. Thompson was interested in too. But these these debates carry right the way through to, you know, contemporary debates about warehouse labour, Amazon. They develop through to debates about um, the uh, um, what, what are the words that I'm looking for? The digital economies, new forms of governing conduct that are associated with. Um, Digitization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that? That's a terrific, that terrific, and, that's a terrific and conclusive answer, Tony. I've got two more questions for you, and before I free you entirely from the bonds of Zoom, uh, after those two questions and your answers, <laughs> your startup attend. Um, I want to throw things over to you, lest there be things that you want to add to or subtract from what we've said. Sound okay? Yeah, that's fine, yeah. So my first question is, 
to present to you a little history and see whether it makes sense to you and what you would make of it. And it's this, that as part of your own implication in some of the debates you've described, you made some sort of movement from being an ideology critic in terms of Marxist theories of meaning, for example, and a a Gramscian-influenced person interested in hegemony to thinking about the state or government or governance, whichever of these terms one chooses to use, as not simply being a site of repression or control or discipline or whatever, but also as um, a productive site of liberal democratic recognition and formation. And this is part of a shift towards Foucault. And some of this shift can be seen in a critique of cultural studies that favours what you came to know as cultural policy studies. Yeah. So that's my, my sort of version. My question is, apart from is that accurate, what about creative industries discourse, which it seems to me is the next takeoff from that point, not by you, but by many people influenced by you? Well, what you said is a fair summary of a, of, um, a trajectory of my work over a particular period in which, you know, having um, originally engaged with Marxist debates in literary theory, Gramsci, hegemony, and so on. And I'm far from wanting to, um, yeah, I'm not a, a, I'm not an enemy of those debates. I mean, those are still important areas of debate and dialogue. Um, it's, I, I really did um, find that Foucault's work, uh, Foucault had very little to say about culture, and he, you know, really diddly squat, actually. I mean, there's a couple of pages. But the, the, the more I read about his work, the more it seemed to me that he suggested some different ways of thinking about culture than its operation as an instrument of state ideology, not just in an Althusserian sense, but in a more general sense, and that it was important. To recall the point that you made earlier, it was important to think about power not just as a negative force, but about the productivity of certain forms of power. And so to look at uh, questions of culture through a Foucauldian lens does mean looking, in some senses, to put it in his terms, you know, look at what look at what is done through various forms of culture and what kind of like productivity. That productivity is not the same thing as saying it's kind of like good or saintly, but it is it is productive of distinctive kinds of effects, new spheres of action and interaction. And so I'm still very powerfully influenced by that and think that that's important to do. But I don't think, having said that, that Foucault's work on, on governmentality is restricted in its implications toward the kind of... It, perspectives that you get out of cultural policy debates as I was interested and involved in them uh, and uh, still am to some degree there's also the biopolitical dimension of governmentality that Foucault engages with that takes you really in a quite different direction and um, in particular I, I didn't touch upon this earlier but if one's looking at questions of the relationships between government and indigenous peoples you can't do this without a biopolitical dimension and I don't think, uh, I haven't really got my mind around how to do this at the moment. I don't think one can engage with questions of contemporary indigenous art practices without engaging with the ways in which they are taking issue with the biopolitical dimensions of various forms of contemporary governance. So it's not, you know, those issues are still very much in play uh, and uh, important to engage with. Um, now, I have to say, the the cultural industries debate has gone in so many different directions um, since I was centrally involved in that is that um, I'm not sure that I have a position on it um, because I haven't really been following it in a in a detailed kind of way. I mean, I know that it's it's obviously it's a it's a set of discourses that's been taken over by and has a much more kind of like prominent presence within official state discourses, to use that term for the moment, than other sorts of traditions within um, than some of the cultural policy discourses. And so it is, um, it is a much more a part of those orthodox, um, I would say, political discourses than 
the perspectives that I've sought to argue for in in cultural policy. But really, I, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I haven't followed those debates for a, a decade. I think it's fair to say. And that is not to your cost. So my right. last question, Tony, before throwing it to you to add or subtract things, is this. So I'm a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed doctoral student. I've written to you and convinced you to meet me. I've gone to Barrel in New South Wales, uh, and I've promised to buy you a cup of tea or coffee in, in return for agreeing to meet me. We're sitting down. We're having the tea or the coffee, perhaps at a local museum or other hotspot. And I say to you, Prof. Bennett, I want to study culture. What do I do? Where do I start? How do I get a PhD in this? I would say to to this very bright-eyed potential PhD candidate that has suddenly emerged before me, I'd say, first of all, the best way to start is buy me a coffee, not a cup of tea. (laughs) That that would be the best way to go down. And I would think then the next uh, key steps would be uh, where do you want to do it? I'm assuming, you know, this would be what kind of institution do you want to do it in? Uh, and key steps would be thinking carefully about a supervisor. Now, but those are things that someone, a prospective PhD student, can't really do until making an application to a university or whatever. So I think the key thing would be to would be to say, well, um, what are the topics going forward that are going to have the greatest kind of like intellectual and political salience for someone looking at the field of culture? Uh, so that's where you'd have to start, I think. And I think that, um, yeah, my 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 response there would be to say, well, you have to you have to really look now at how fast the field of culture is changing under a whole series of developments that have been underway for some while, but that are, you know, going on at an unbelievable pace at the moment. I use the term digitization somewhat clumsily earlier on, but the consequences of this and now of a whole series of developments that are being brought in its toe, they're so fast, they're so consequential, they are... um, restructuring the ground upon which you would want upon which you need to pose questions concerning the relationships between culture and power or culture as power that that's where you need to start so that for example whereas it made perfectly good sense and was enormously productive going back to the 1970s to engage with conceptions of culture and power through the lens of hegemony uh, it'd be it'd be different now, I think. You know, um, that wouldn't kind of like run in the same way. I don't think. Uh, and I think perhaps another point to make that, that I would make, and I think this is something that's more evident in the field of, um, let's say, cultural sociology and so or sociology than it might be in straight cultural studies, is to say you have to. It's important to look upwards. At what is happening up at the level of elites and the newer power machinations that are going on in a society now that is characterized by such enormously increasing magnitudes of inequality <clears throat> that it's quite unbelievable. The terrain there is so very, very different than the terrain was in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I mean, when, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's completely different terrain in terms of both the scale of inequalities and the mechanisms through which it's reproduced and the forms of engagement through which it's perpetuated. So it's, it is critically important um, to, to, look, to look upwards uh, as well as horizontally. Great advice. And I think you might get a second cup of coffee, maybe even a cookie or a piece All of right, Very good. <laughs> so You're worth talking to you then. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, of course, there's no such transaction available digitally at the moment anyway. No, no, no. All right. I'll let you off. Uh, Prof. Bennett, are there things that you would like to say in closing that we haven't touched on or maybe areas that you'd like to enlarge upon? 
No, I don't think so. I think uh, I'd like to thank you for asking me to join you in your podcast series. I've listened to one or two. They're very interesting. I hope that the people who listen to this um, get something out of it. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing who you next present yourself to as a prospective PhD student. <laughs> Many thanks, Tony.